I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Kevin Kelly with the Long Now Foundation. Uh, Stuart Brand is absent. He's on a um, field trip to the site of the Long Now Clock. And um, I'll be your host for this evening. So a lot of new people, so we want to kind of review some of the procedures. The main thing is we have these cards, and um, you get to ask questions for our speaker via the cards. Um, fill them out, and uh, people with the yellow hats will come by and pick them up. Um, having done this myself, uh, they're now being um, vetted through Alexander Rose from the Long Nile Foundation, who will be over there, and he'll pass them up to me, and I'll look through them, and I'll ask Michael the questions. Uh, legibility counts. Um, it's kind of dark down here. If you can't read it, it doesn't get asked. Take your time filling them out. Another reason to fill out the forms is because they have an email address. Uh, it's really good to get your name on the list. This is how you find out about our upcoming talks. And also, um, we send out a review, a summary of the talk the following day. Many people actually enjoy those almost as much as the talks. And you get those with the email address list. Um, the next talk that we have is actually this month. Uh, we usually have just one a month, but we have actually two in May. This uh, May, the, the next speaker is Paul Romer, the economist, who will be speaking on May 18th. And also, I bring to your attention, um, if you like this talk, you might be interested in the one on July 28th. Um, Pamela Ronald and Raul Adamachak, who are talking about organically grown and genetically engineered food for the future. So um, our um, speaker tonight is, is Michael Pollan. Uh, he'll be signing books, uh, copies of his In Defense of Food paperback out here at the end of the talk. Um, he also um, will be appearing in a documentary called Food, Inc., which will be shown, I think, sometime in June, first week of June or so. Um, he appears in that. And um, uh, he also um, will be talking to us tonight about um, deep agriculture. So Long Now is, is about trying to think in terms of long-term thinking. And that's not often done with food. Food is a system. We like to take a systems view of it, and that's what Michael Pollan actually is an expert at thinking about the kind of systematic view of food through time. But also, unlike people who think systematically, he also thinks about it with his heart. He's a food lover. And that combination is actually very rare of taking both the immediate view and the long view. And with that, I'd like you to welcome, excuse me, Michael Pollan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. Um, they want you backstage to fix your microphone. Um, 
Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, it really is a special honor to be uh, invited into this community. Um, and I, I'm very appreciative. I, I looked at the list of past speakers and many of my heroes. Um, so it's... Uh, uh, and, and a little bit surprising, um, because I think people don't think of food and farming as about the future so much as the past, generally. Certainly that was the, the common view of agriculture in our society till very, very recently. It was kind of uh, yesterday's news, you know, about as sexy as uh, Green Acres or Beverly Hillbillies or the, the CBS uh, primetime lineup up until a few years ago. Um, but that's clearly changed. How we feed ourselves today goes right to the biggest questions of our time. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, farming's almost cool. Hardly a week goes by, and I'm not exaggerating, where I meet a software developer who's, who's you know, taking his options and, and, uh, and buying a farm. Um, so what I'd like to do today, I'm going to talk for about 40, 45 minutes and then uh, take your questions, and I look forward to hearing them. Uh, but I want to offer a kind of state of the movement address. Um, talk a little bit about where we are, uh, because we're at this very interesting fulcrum moment, I think, of change around food, and where we need to go long term. Those of us who've been working for many years to reform the food system and the American way of eating, we suddenly find ourselves in a very uh, odd and in some ways exciting but also uncomfortable new place. Um, no longer holding a sign outside on the granite steps of the USDA or, or the Capitol, um, but inside with a seat at the table. The challenge now is to figure out what to say. Um, I want to start out with a little quiz. I'm going to read you a quote, um, and you tell me or try to tell me which well-known critic of the American food system said this. Here's how it goes. Our entire agricultural system is built on cheap oil. As a consequence, our agriculture sector actually is contributing more greenhouse gases than our transportation sector. And in the meantime, it's creating monocultures that are vulnerable to national security threats that are also now vulnerable to sky-high food prices or crashes in food prices, huge swings in commodity prices, and are partly responsible for the explosion in our health care costs because they're contributing to type 2 diabetes, stroke, and heart disease, obesity, all the things that are driving our huge explosion in health care co costs. Any idea who said that? Yeah, President Obama said that. Isn't that kind of amazing? What that tells us is that we have a president, and he, we know he's a supreme dot connector, right, in many ways, but he's, he's uh, a very good dot connector in the food system, and that he has made the links between the way we grow our food and the health care crisis on the one hand and the energy and climate change crisis on the other. That's a very uh, big connection to draw, and it has, it has tremendous implications. So we have a president who understands this, these issues. Um, we actually have a, a secretary of agriculture who appeared, Tom Vilsack, who appears to be uh, charged with a mandate for reform. We don't know how far that's going to go. Although we do know his number two, uh, a woman named Kathleen Merrigan, uh, who's very closely identified with, with writing the organic rules uh, and is a, a devoted um, uh, reformer, uh, is running the Department of Agriculture. That's kind of mind-blowing. Um, and then, of course, we have Michelle Obama, 
who so far may be doing the most important thing of all, which is to say talking about real food, planting a garden, a garden she took pains to tell the media was an organic garden. She didn't have to take that extra step. And, you know, it really pissed off the, um, the uh, crop protection industry, as they currently like to call themselves. <laughs> they, uh, they wrote her a letter, actually. It was, kind of, it was polite, uh, but pointed, about... Um, you know, we really think you, by, by making this garden organic, you have uh, cast aspersions on, uh, on conventional food in our industry, and we really hope you will consider buying and using some of our you know, wonderful crop protection products. <laughs> anyway, um, so all that is very exciting. It's given a huge boost, I think, to the movement and, and indeed to, to home gardening. Um, if you've tried to buy garden seeds... You know, you go to your um, garden center and you will find, you know, kind of holes, missing teeth in that great wall of, of seed packets. Um, but the, it, the question still remains, is there a mandate for real change? Is Obama prepared to use his considerable political capital on this issue? Um, and do we have a path that will take us from where we are to where we want to be? Um, Obama certainly did not run on a platform of reforming food and agriculture. Yet my argument tonight is that sooner or later, first term or more likely second term, he will find himself forced to deal with the food system um, because he will have a lot of trouble, he will discover, making significant progress on health care costs or climate change or energy independence without tackling the food system because it is the shadow problem. Uh, over all those, th those three other problems. Um, and the way we're feeding ourselves is at the heart of all three issues. Consider these a couple stats. The food system, as that quote uh, indicated, uh, and this news has reached Obama, but the food system as a whole, that's agriculture and food processing, uses more fossil fuel, about 20% of the total, uh, and contributes more greenhouse gases um, not just CO2, but methane and nitrous oxide from fertilizer, to the atmosphere than any other industry. Somewhere, depending on the studies, and none of them are reliable, um, between 17 and 34% of greenhouse gases traceable to the way we're eating. Um, the industrialization of American agriculture over the past 50 years has transformed it from a system that used to produce two calories of food energy for every one calorie of fossil fuel energy, because, you know, calories are just energy, right? You can have food calories, you can have fossil fuel calories. Um, so two calories, you would get two calories of food for every calorie of fossil fuel you put into the system to a system where today it takes 10 calories of fossil fuel energy to produce one calorie of food. That, you know, if, you know when we use this word unsustainable, um, which is a, a, a vexed, complicated word, often misused. I, I, I think that that's a pretty good uh, case for an unsustainable industry, given what we know about the future of fossil fuel. And then there are many worse cases than that. Uh, feedlot beef, your McDonald's hamburger, um, if it's fed from corn that's been fed from fossil fuel, is even worse. 55 calories of fossil fuel energy to bring one calorie of food to the table. Um, so when we eat from the modern industrial food system, and this is the key point, we are eating oil and spewing greenhouse gas, which is kind of crazy when you recall that 
every calorie we eat is ultimately the product of photosynthesis. That is the only way to get food energy off of this planet, is sunlight feeding plants, plants turning that light, a couple simple minerals, um, and uh, carbon dioxide into edible calories. It's the only way to do it. And if you're eating meat, you're eating the result of photosynthesis in the, in the feed. Uh, and if you're eating fish, you're eating the result of photosynthesis in the algae at the bottom of that food chain. So it's the only way to do it. Food is the original solar technology. Um, and there is, I think, enormous hope in that simple fact. Now, let's turn our attention briefly to the healthcare crisis. Since 1960, when I was a boy, spending on health care in this country has risen from 5% of national income to 18%. We won't be able to insure everyone in this country unless we get those costs under control. Now, there are many reasons for high health care costs, but one of the biggest, and perhaps the biggest if you listen to the CDC, is the cost of preventable chronic diseases linked to diet. Four of the top ten killers are chronic diseases linked to diet. Two-thirds of heart disease can be traced to diet. Forty percent of cancer can be traced to diet. Um, most of type 2 diabetes, most of obesity, obviously. CDC estimates that um, of the $2 trillion we're spending on health care today, $1.5 trillion, three-quarters, goes to treat preventable chronic disease. Um, and this doesn't even include the cost of antibiotic-resistant diseases that are coming off of our feedlots or the effects of agricultural pollution. Now, is it just a coincidence that in these years that health care costs were soaring from 5% of national income to 18%, it's between 17 and 18%, the cost, the percentage of our personal income we spent on food plummeted from 18% to 9.5%. So you see, as we have spent less on food, we have spent more on health care, which suggests that cheap food perhaps has some hidden costs. So that's the bad news. Um, our food system is broken. Um, we probably can't afford to keep on eating this way. Um, cheap food has cost us dearly. And our agricultural policies are largely responsible. Um, the intention of those policies, and, and I can't emphasize too much, the extent to which the food system we have is the result of the incentive system we created around food for our farmers, for our processors. Um, the food system we have is not the result of the free market. It's not the result of nature. There is nothing it, inevitable about it. It's very evitable. Um, and it is, that's a real word. Um, <laughs> and there is, uh, so we have to pay attention to policy, and we will as we go through this. Um, so that's the bad news. The, the good news is, though, that food is this original solar technology. If there's any part of the economy we should be able to re-solarize, you would think it is food. Um, we are, as a society, I think, coming to uh, a very important recognition. And that is that you cannot have a healthy population without a healthy diet. I think that's generally accepted. What's less well-known... Um, but equally important, and I think is dawning, is the idea that you cannot have a healthy diet without a healthy agriculture. That these two things are intimately linked. 
And there is no way to protect yourself merely by getting the right nutrients, eating the right things from a sick food chain. Um, that really doesn't work. So the good news is that Americans increasingly sense that the system is broken. We have leaders who understand that it is broken. A movement for reform is building. And the market for alternative kinds of food, whether you're talking about organic or uh, pasture-based or local, is booming. Um, the even better news is this. The same policies that will reduce agriculture's contribution to climate change and the energy crisis will also dramatically improve public health. There is no issue of trade-offs. This is not a zero-sum. Uh, this is one of those lucky issues that is not zero-sum. We can make progress on all these fronts at once, make the system safer, more secure, more sustainable, and tastier. Um, not only here in America, but in the developing world as well. What I think we won't be able to do again is make food as cheap as it has been or something we can ever take for granted again. Now, food reform, you know, that's a big chaotic subject, means a lot of different things to different people. And you've got lots of people in this movement working at, in their own little uh, fiefs. I mean, you've got people working on school lunch, very important work. You have people working on labeling. You have people working on building local food economies, bringing food to food deserts in the inner cities. Um, you know, getting the trans fats out of the food, out of food. Um, you know, all these different kind of elements. And it is a little inchoate as a movement. And, and that's why when I use this term movement, some people are kind of surprised. Um, but there's very little in the way of organizing ideas, big, simple ideas that, that will knit these people together. Um, and that's what I want to talk about, um, the big picture. And the virtues of a big guiding idea is that it can help you judge all the smaller ideas, all the proposals, all the new technologies that come along. Are they moving you in the direction of your big idea or away from it? Um, we have policies. We, you know, we have personal policies, but we have public policies, so we don't have to rethink every question that comes up. Um, so I want to lay out that big idea, um, a long-term framework for reform. And this is a process I began in an article you may have uh, read, Farmer-in-Chief, uh, in the New York Times last fall, uh, at a time when I didn't know who the Farmer-in-Chief would be. A key feature of this idea is, as I said, it's not zero-sum. It does not pit rural farmers against urban eaters, uh, or the interests of health and the environment against the interests of American farmers. Here's the core idea. We need to wean the American food system off its heavy 20th century diet of fossil fuels and put it back on a diet of contemporary sunshine. That's basically it. Easier said than done, of course. Um, it will require changes at every link in the food chain that connects you to the soil that you're eating from. Um, changes at the level of the farm, the marketplace, and the culture. And I want to walk through those three levels. But we do know this. The sun sh still shines very brightly, brighter than ever, in fact, um, if any part of the modern economy can be solarized, it should be food. Now, I want to just very briefly uh, run through how we got here. Um, this idea that we're eating fossil fuel is um, not immediately apparent. Um, basically, when we began industrializing agriculture, which is, you know, begins before World War II but really takes off with World War II, what we were doing, another way to phrase that, is we were taking labor out of the farm and replacing it with fossil fuel and technology. So that all the big innovations 
not all of them, but most of the big innovations in agriculture, such as uh, ammonium nitrate fertilizer, um, pesticides, most of which are made from uh, petroleum, were um, basically fossil fuel products. And they were very much the products of World War II. Um, we took the munitions. Uh, ammonium nitrate is, is bomb uh, fuel, um, as we learned in, uh, in uh, Omaha. Uh, no, in Oklahoma. Oklahoma City a few years ago. Um, and we converted that to uh, fertilizer. The same factories that were making bombs one day, on a given day in 1947, began making fertilizer in great quantities. Vandana Shiva says that we are uh, still eating the leftovers of World War II. And that's what she means. We're eating uh, the result of that conversion of fertilizer and nerve gases, which became our pesticides. Those, those, those grew out of uh, research into how to kill people. And we found that in tiny doses, they kill bugs pretty reliably. Um, now, the reason, what those technologies allow you to do is something that, that doesn't happen in nature very much, and that is monocultures. Very large fields of the same thing, um, which have certain advantages. Um, a monoculture can be, at, you know, in a very simple sense, an efficient technology. And the, these are technologies. Um, one tractor, one pass can harvest a whole field of corn. Um, one corn planter can, can, can plant 18 or 36 rows at the same time. So moving from diversity to this monoculture allowed you to greatly increase production. But you couldn't do it without these technologies. Because if you, kept, if you just had corn upon corn upon corn, you would deplete your soil. But ammonium nitrate fertilizer, a source of nitrogen, allowed you to replenish the soil from a bag. Um, monocultures are also supremely vulnerable to pests. Uh, you will build up a huge uh, population of the pests of, whatever, you know, of your corn or your soy or whatever it is. So you can't have a monoculture without pesticides to defend them. Um, and this worked really well. It still works really well from one measure. And we need to acknowledge the achievement of this system, which is that, put one way, you can walk into a fast food outlet and you can get yourself two or 3,000 calories of food you know, a day's worth, for less than uh, the minimum wage for one hour. Now, if you think about it, in the long course of human history, where people have put so much time and effort into keeping themselves fed, this is an amazing achievement. It just happens to have come at a very high cost. So, but we should acknowledge that. Um, and this has been our policy. We have rewarded farmers for planting monocultures. We only subsidize five crops. Um, if you are a corn farmer, uh, we'll give you money to grow corn and soy, but if you want to put in a row of broccoli, that land is permanently ineligible for subsidies. Okay? We, it's illegal for you to diversify your farm under our current agriculture policies. We wanted to encourage this. Earl Butts, the, the great 1970s-era ag secretary, said, you know, plant fence row to fence row. Get bigger, get out. Um, and this was our goal. Um, it was our goal because the public's interest was in having more cheap calories. And we need to remember when we started, I'm trying to be as sympathetic to this regime as I can, that, um, you know, early in the 20th century, the big public health problem was people were hungry. Even Kennedy, when he, you know, looked at poverty, found, mu you know, a great deal of rural hunger and urban hunger. Um, so we asked our farmers to solve the great public health problem of that time, which was, 
We need more cheap calories. And they did it. They did a brilliant job. The challenge today is to once again align the public interest with the work of farmers. Because I'm convinced that American farmers can do whatever we ask them to as a society. We just need to ask them for something a little different. Um, Fossil fuel played other roles in the system. It allowed us to nationalize the system. We could move food from California with refrigerated trucks all the way to New York, and we began doing that. Um, Fossil fuel pumped the water in the irrigation systems. Uh, Fossil fuel is what allows us today to have these, you know, really crazy supply chains. I mean, we are... We are catching salmon sustainably. Native Americans are catching salmon sustainably in Alaska. It is then being flown to China to be filleted and then flown back to California to be eaten. So when you see that sustainable salmon at Whole Foods, you have to to realize what hasn't been counted. Um, We... um, um, You know, California now feeds New York. That's an amazing idea. Uh, Iowa imports 90% of its food. This is the best soil in the world does not feed Iowa because they export raw material, corn and soy. It gets turned into processed food. They buy it back. Iowa is a food desert by and large. Um, We, you know, we, uh, as Herman Daly pointed out, we, we import sugar cookies from Denmark and we export sugar cookies to Denmark. And he said, you know, it might be a a good idea to swap recipes instead. (laughs) But this system will not go on indefinitely. Something very interesting happened last summer when when fuel prices got as high as they got. Uh, The cost of shipping a box of broccoli from from Salinas Valley to the Huns Point Market in the Bronx went from $3 a box to $10 a box. Price of broccoli went, went through the roof in New York. And what happened when it hit that price was very interesting. You had um, companies like Tanmura and Antle and the big growers and packers in the Central Valley buying farmland in New England because they saw the writing on the wall. They saw that, you know, this is crazy. We're not going to be able to ship produce across the country indefinitely. Um, We are going to have to figure out a way to grow food nearer to where people live that they will be doing it and not New England's farmers is, uh, is, is a tragedy, I think. But um, hopefully the New England farmers will uh, get in on that deal. Um, so I think we understand that we're in this little moment of cheap fossil fuel and that whatever you think of the system, however much you like it, um, it depends on that fossil fuel and cannot survive it getting uh, expensive again. Um, So the challenge is then, how do you get this system off of oil, which is so deeply implicated? And by the way, it's most implicated in the fact that we have no farmers left. We only have a million full-time farmers in this country. 305 million people are being fed by one million. That's astounding. These are the most productive humans who have ever lived. One Iowa farmer, they are. One Iowa farmer feeds about 150 of his neighbors. Um... And that has never been the case. Um, And it probably can't continue because it all depends on cheap fossil fuel. So how do you get your system off of of cheap fossil fuel? That's what I want to walk you through. Um, You need radical reforms at three levels. Reforms that are going to take a long time. Reforms that have some serious obstacles uh, before them. Um, The first is on the farm. I want to talk a little bit about agriculture. Um, You know... 
the key to getting uh, farms off of fossil fuel is figuring out how you produce lots of biomass without, without it, right? N amazingly enough, nature produces huge amounts of biomass every year without fossil fuels, without pesticides, without fertilizers. How, so how does it do it? And we have understood this for a long time. In fact, uh, some of the intellectual history of this organization dovetails with that knowledge, and that is in 1971, and this really is the beginning of the modern food movement, I think, Wendell Berry published an article in the Whole Earth Catalog introducing Americans to the work of Sir Albert Howard, an English agronomist who'd spent a lot of time in India studying peasant agricultures in the 30s, and he explained that the way you did it was you modeled your system on nature whether you're talking about a forest or a prairie. These systems were sustainable. They renewed their fertility. They had cycles of growth and decay. And they dealt with pests through biodiversity, through many, many species. You did not find monocultures in nature. Um, and that has basically been the core idea since then of, of organic agriculture. How do you mimic, how do you best mimic those systems um, and move from monoculture to polyculture? Which is to say, growing many crops in rotation or symbiotically. The power to produce huge amounts of food from such systems has been proven. Producing huge amounts of foods basically from sunlight, soil, and water at very different scales. And I, I've written about some of it. If you read Omnivore's Dilemma, I described Joel Salatin's remarkable farm, which is now has many, many imitators in California. Um, this uh, orchestrated five-species dance uh, of, of, of creatures um, that produces huge amounts of meat from very little land. Um, but, we, but we have proof that you can do this at large scales, too. And one interesting case is Argentina, where you have farms of five and 10,000 acres, bigger even than the farms you find in Iowa today or Nebraska. And they have this very clever rotation, which is to say that they graze uh, ruminants, mostly cattle, on grass for five years rotationally. And this grazing builds up so much fertility in the soil, so much carbon in the soil, that they can then plow that, those pastures, those perennial pastures, and get three years of grain, corn, soy, whatever they want, um, without any fertilizer whatsoever, without any pesticides, because the weeds that would be a problem in the pastures can't survive tillage, and the weeds that would be a problem in tilled fields can't survive years of perennial. Um, so we know you can do this, um, and a lot of it depends on redefining our sense of what a clever technology is. And what I suggest is that a really smart rotation, like that eight-year rotation in Argentina, is as clever and um, powerful a technology as the latest genetically modified seed. And we need to look at it that way. The question is, why don't we look at it that way? Well, by and large, because there's nothing to sell in the case of the rotation. And what makes agriculture really work in a sustainable direction are processes more than products, which is why there's very little R&D that goes into developing these technologies. So one of the things we need to do is, is shift our research agenda uh, in that direction and not count on private companies who, who will not be able to figure out a way to lock up the intellectual property of a really good relation, uh, relationship between chickens and, and cows and pigs on a farm. Um, so 
that's one thing. We need to research, uh, we need to shift the whole research agenda. The government, though, as I suggested, subsidized this whole move toward strict monocultures. And there is no reason why, with a different set of policies, changing the incentives, we can't move agriculture back. There is one reason why, actually, I'll get to that. Um, we should, for example, instead of right now our, our subsidies reward farmers by the bushel, how much can they grow uh, of these five crops that we subsidize, we could reward them instead for diversification. For how many different crops do you have? We'll pay you more for every one you add to the rotation. Or we'll pay you to plant a cover crop in the fall, which very few farmers do today. Cover crops by themselves, another great technology, completely unglamorous, uh, what, you know, what they do is they keep soil from eroding over the winter when it's lots of snow on it. They, they, they build up carbon in the soil. Farmers don't do it. Why not? Well, they usually get a break if they spray their fertilizer in the fall um, because the fertilizer spreaders aren't as busy as they are in the spring. And they, uh, they, wanna, I mean, they have a whole lot of reasons that have to do with their convenience and the fact that they're not rewarded for doing it. Um, nothing could do more to clean up the Gulf of Mexico than cover crops in Iowa and places like that. Um, fertility. You know, in the same way that cheap oil is a curse because it leads to profligate use, uh, cheap nitrogen has been a curse too. Um, and that there shouldn't be such cheap nitrogen. And there won't be when fossil fuel prices get high. Um, it, it quadrupled in price during the uh, oil spike. Um, but we also need municipal composting. We need, we need mandatory composting in our cities to generate compost to bring back to our farms. I mean, we're, we're really just, you know, throwing out all the fertility that we're growing. Um, to diversify farms, to really close this nutrient loop, you need to put animals back on farms. One of the things our subsidies did was um, allow farmers to sell their grain below the cost of production. And this sucked all the animals off of America's farms and put them on feedlots because the feedlot operator could buy grain more cheaply than a farmer could grow it. So it, become un, it became uneconomical for farmers to have animals on their farms. This was a disaster from an environmental point of view. And I would argue from a cultural point of view as well. Um, when you take animals off of farms and put them on feedlots, you are taking, this is Wendell Berry's line, you're taking a brilliant solution, which is to say the animals um, consume crop waste and give you fertility, uh, and the plants feed the animals, and get fertility from the animals. You take this brilliant solution, technology too, and you neatly divide it into two problems. <laughs> you have a fertility uh, shortage on the farm where the crops are being raised that you remedy with fossil fuel fertilizers. And then you have a fertility surplus on the feedlots where you have these manure lagoons where we're breeding things like swine flu um, that, you know, this... You would think farmers would die for this stuff. No, they don't want it. It's got too many pharmaceuticals in it. It's got too much phosphorus in it. And so it sits there uh, releasing um, methane and nitrous oxide into the air. Um, so getting animals back on farms, very, very important. Um, we should be subsidizing our farmers. And I do believe we should subsidize farmers, by the way. I don't think the answer is to go to a free market system in agriculture. We, it has never worked in any recorded civilization. Farming is is subject to crises of overproduction um, that are just unavoidable. We can talk about that later if you want. Um, but what we should pay them for, again, is, to, is for fulfilling the interests of the public, which we're not doing. We're out of phase. They, were, they did a good job. They did what we asked them to do. Now let's ask them for something else. And what should we ask them for? Well, the one big thing I would ask them for is sequestering carbon. 
take this 700 million acres of farm and ranch land and manage it in such a way that it is taking carbon out of the air. Estimates are between 10 and 15% of all atmospheric carbon could be returned to the soil with sustainable agricultural practices. I'm delighted to hear Al Gore talking about this issue for the first time as, as part of the solution. Um, and there are ways we could do that. We have to learn how to measure carbon better. We have to figure out the best ways to do it. But we know rotational grazing, um, where you move the animals every day, produces huge amounts of carbon in the soil. I can explain how later. We know that organic agriculture compared to conventional agriculture builds up the carbon in the soil. We know how to do this. We have to figure out how to measure it and how to reward farmers for it. And one of my big concerns about this cap-and-trade scheme is that the first bill to emerge uh, from Henry Waxman's committee simply left agriculture out. We are not going to get a handle on climate change by ignoring agriculture, not when it represents a third of the problem. Why did they leave agriculture out? Because that's what big ag wanted them to do. They don't want to be involved. Because in addition to the carrots of paying farmers for sequestering carbon or generating you know, energy, um, you need uh, sticks as well. You need to take Tulare County, where vast amounts of methane and nitrous oxide are leaving these um, huge cattle confinement operations and make them pay for that in the same way that power plants are going to pay for their emissions. So you need carrots and sticks in agriculture, and nothing could do more to drive the whole system change that we're talking about than that. Um, but you should also be rewarding farmers for creating bee habitat. We have a crisis of the honeybees uh, right now. That is the result of monoculture. So let's reward them for taking out a row of almonds every you know, 50,000 rows and put in a row of flowers, of perennials, so that the bees stick around um, for the whole year. Um, we should reward farmers for generating electricity, for wind energy. We should, and this might sound weird, one of the most important functions of agriculture is to keep cities in check, stopping sprawl. We should reward farms in critical areas uh, as, as, uh, as bulwarks against sprawl. Um, so, again, the basic goal is to realign the public interest. What do we need as a society? And then reward farmers for giving that to us. Um, now, I said that there was an obstacle, and the biggest obstacle to what I'm describing is labor. We don't have enough farmers, I don't think, to grow sustainably. I said we were down to about a million. That's not enough. And as fossil fuel gets expensive or runs out, um, we're going to need more people on the land. It's hard to imagine 20 or 30 more million people on the land in this country. I actually think it's easier to move developing world agriculture in a sustainable direction, as much as Monsanto wants to, you know, bring their seeds to Africa. I think that um, it, it is a place where these kind of systems would work really, really well because you still have a lot of people on the land. Um, and industrializing agriculture there and driving them to the city seems like not a smart idea. Um, but what do we do here? Well, we have to encourage uh, the, the many people, the many young people today who do want to farm, make it possible. Make cheap land available to them. Make an education in agriculture available to them. Um, and there are signs that this is happening for the first time. The, the new agriculture census uh, that's done every five years found an uptick in the number of farmers in America. The first time in history. About 100,000 new farmers uh, today over five years ago. Very small farmers, local farms, people at farmers markets, CSAs. So um, we have to make farming cool. We have to make it pay well. 
um, to encourage people to go back to the land. And the last thing we have to do on the farm is preserve farmland near our cities. Um, that is one of the most important, most endangered resources we have. Um, we are lucky in uh, San Francisco that you don't have to travel hundreds of miles to get to good farmland. Um, but we have to make sure it stays this way. In the same way that if you want to develop a wetland, you have to meet a very high bar of proof that is absolutely necessary, and you will be strongly discouraged from doing it. The same should hold true for prime A1 farmland, that you should have to provide a food system impact statement before you're allowed to develop it. Because once houses go up on this land, um, it will never be farmed again. I say that, although I just heard about, uh, uh, there's an environmental group um, that is actually bulldozing um, uh, defunct real estate developments in the Central Valley now. Um, <laughs> so I might be wrong about that. The Trust for Public Land is involved in a, in a big project to actually return a, a, a subdivision to parkland. But the next step is farmland. Um, and we should incorporate farms in our development schemes. We should reward developers in the same way we reward them for, um, uh, for um, you know, open space. Um, we should reward them for including farms. I mean, what if we had farms in the middle of all those subdivisions instead of golf courses? Wouldn't that be great? With CSAs? With anyway, so that's the last uh, point on farms. Now, you ask, can we feed the world this way? This is the big question. I get asked this all the time. And I'll tell you the really honest answer. I, I don't know. I really don't know. But the reason I don't know is we haven't tried. And a lot of people are prepared to give up before we try. Um, I also know that there is a whole lot of slack in this system. Half of the grain we grow in the world is going to feed animals. And that the great slack is, of course, meat-eating worldwide. I also know that a quarter of the food we're growing is simply wasted. So there is probably enough land to grow all the food we need for the 10 billion that are coming. The labor, I think, is really the big question. Um, but, you know, before people, it's so interesting how people are just, they raise this question and then they turn to Monsanto. And, you know, we, by the same token, we, we don't know if we can run an industrial civilization without cheap fossil fuel. We don't know if we can do that either. But we know we have to try. We know we have to try. And the same goes for food. And it's not all or nothing. You commit yourself. You move in that direction. You shift the research agenda. We have the models. And what we need are the people and the commitment to do it. Now, level two. I'm going to go a little faster through level two and three. Um, if the farms diversify, you know, somebody's got to buy that stuff. If they move to five crops in Iowa and there's nobody left to eat food in Iowa... Um, that's not going to work. Right now, the grain elevator only will buy corn and soy if you live in Iowa. So we need to diversify the food marketplace. Um, we need to build a real local food infrastructure. We need Four Seasons Farmers Markets in every town in America. Not expensive buildings. Uh, as soon as you had farmers markets that were not simply seasonal, and we have to remember the idea of a 50-week farmers market that we're all spoiled on here in California is, uh, is quite rare in the rest of the world. 
Um, but if you had indoor structures, beautiful structures, like the Bocaria in Barcelona, and, and, and Europe is full of these structures, you would have farmers growing produce under glass, more root vegetables, and more meat, and cheese, and, and all that kind of food would show up in those markets. So that, I think, is a very important thing that we need to do. Um, we, the basic premise, though, here is we need to decentralize the food system. Now, you say that might be a little less efficient, and I will concede it is less efficient. But one of the most important lessons, I think, of the last few years is that as important a value as efficiency is, resilience, finally, is a more important value. And efficient systems, by definition, are not resilient. Because resiliency depends on redundancy, right? And by definition, that is inefficient, to do things to, you know, twice. Um, so... The advantages of decentralizing the food system are many, though. It will reduce fossil fuel consumption. But more important, the system can better withstand shocks. And the only thing we can be sure of going forward is that there will be shocks. Oil price shocks, weather shocks, pathogen shocks, terrorism shocks. And one of the, the real vulnerabilities of our food system, of this national food chain based on monocultures, based on only four companies selling all the beef, uh, three grain traders, um, you know, incredibly uh, cinched waste economy of this food system is that it is exquisitely vulnerable to accidental or deliberate contamination. We learned this after 9-11. The government went and was looking for all the different vulnerabilities in our society, and the GAO did a report, Government Accounting Office, and they said one of the biggest vulnerabilities of all is the food system. We have a single hamburger grinding plant that's feeding 50 million people over the course of a month. We have a single lettuce washing facility that's doing 26 million servings of salad every week. Um, a single uh, canister of poison introduced into those systems could kill huge amounts of people. And the government saw this threat and said, well, yes, we have a problem with centralized food production in this country, and then buried it because nobody wanted to go there. Nobody wanted to go there. But we need to go there. Um, and if we, if we relocalize the food system, we will be eating more real food because this system of monocultures feeds into a system of heavily processed food that can, you know, the deathless Twinkie that lasts on, you know, on the shelf for two years is very much tied to the system I'm describing. So the market is pushing things in this direction. There is an incredible ferment, uh, lots of effort to relocalize food, but the government can do a lot to encourage it, and to get out of the way in some ways. Um, they need to deregulate small food processors who, who you know, I, I talk to farmers all the time who are growing wonderful pork, but they're not allowed to smoke a ham without having $100,000 of facility um, because the rules are designed for Hormel, and, and the little farmer with his, you know, couple hams can't, simply can't afford to, to, uh, to be in that system. Uh, we need antitrust enforcement. Um, that this food system is so heavily concentrated that even if we just went back to the level of antitrust enforcement of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, we would have a completely different food system than we have now. Um, I think the most important thing the government can do to, to, to create a, uh, uh, you know, a renaissance of local food production and consumption would be simply to um, uh, regionalize food procurement. Just, you know, pass a law. In the same way we have a law that a certain amount of procurement for, for say, military contractors has to go to minority contractors because that satisfies a public goal. Um, well, what if 
one or two percent of all the money the government spends on, on military bases, on prisons, on schools, went to local food production, food grown within 100 miles. That would do it. Just that. Two percent. That's all we need. Um, and we also need to develop urban ag because there are lots of places where food can be grown in cities. And one of the most exciting things happening in this food movement that I didn't mention earlier is what's happening in our cities. Um, if you go to Detroit, there's, a, there's an amazing uh, a project there to feed the city from the city. Uh, Will Allen is a, a visionary farmer in inner city Milwaukee who's growing huge amounts of food on two acres in the middle of Milwaukee and has plans to feed 10% of that city from his farm. Um, so we need to support that kind of work. And there's evidence that this government will be supporting that. Um, I think we've barely begun to test the potential of urban agriculture to deal with these food deserts, uh, which are such a big part of the public health problem. Um, so that's level two, the economy. Uh, there's a lot we can do. It's not that expensive. Um, it just takes a commitment on the part of the government and a food industry that is willing to allow it to happen. Um, and that may be the hard obstacle there. And level three is the food culture. The fact is, I've described this as a supply-driven problem, that we have all this cheap calories coming off the farms that gets turned into processed food that we eat. It ruins our health. It ruins the land. It really has ruined the occupation of farming for so many people. Well, we are all implicated in the culture of fast, cheap, and easy food. Um, if you look at the numbers for this food industry, um, uh, we spend about $881 billion on food every year. You know how much of that gets back to the farmers? They clear about $69 billion of that. Okay, it's a tiny, tiny amount, and $14 billion of what they're clearing is subsidies. Um, just to give you an idea, the people who make the packages, the cellophane and the cardboard, they're clearing $69 billion. They're, they're making more money than the farmers are. Okay? We're spending more money on the packages our food comes from than on the farmers. So we can't expect them to drive this change. That's too much to ask. It's really that $770 billion of food marketing, food processing, which is to say convenience eating. Um, so... They're, you know, the farmers are not the decision makers here. Um, to a large extent, it's, it's about policy and it's about us. And that means changing our behavior. Um, we need to enlist more people in this movement. And that's why I think what Michelle Obama is doing is so important. We need to begin with our children. Um, we need, you know, Alice Waters really got this one right. Um, the fact is that the way you begin to change the food culture is teach children how to grow food, how to cook food, and how to eat food. Now that might sound a little paternalistic that our schools should be teaching children how to eat and that strikes parents as odd. But make no mistake, we're teaching them how to eat right now. If you give kids for lunch chicken nuggets and tater tots and 10 minutes to eat them in, you are teaching them very effectively how to become a fast food consumer for the rest of their lives. So we need to teach them in a different way. So I think reform of school lunch, which is very much on the agenda this year, uh, the school lunch reauthorization is coming up, is, is vitally important. We need to bring back home ec. We need to make, as, as, as Alice Waters says, make lunch an academic subject. Um, I think she's absolutely right about that. Now, we also need to teach adults, uh, because a great many adults are not aware that they're eating fossil fuel. They think they're eating hamburgers and french fries. 
Um, and you could see how they might make that mistake. It looks more like hamburgers and french fries than fossil fuel. So we have to make it look, make it look a little more like oil. And uh, the way you do that, I think, is you put a second calorie count on every package of processed food. That there are, you know, 60 calories of food energy in this head of lettuce or whatever it is, and 160 calories of fossil fuel energy. So you can know at a glance, are you eating something that um, took more fossil fuel energy than solar energy to deliver to you? And if we put that on every food package, at least those people who care would be educated um, about what's really going on. Um, we need much more. Uh, that's one example of a whole raft of measures to make the food system more transparent. The fact is, people really are v- deeply disconnected from where their food comes from. And it's very hard to find out. The products all lie. There are, you know, images of farms and pastoral scenery on the packages of, that really are coming from feedlots. Um, when the food system gets this long and this opaque, it's very hard to know what kind of system you're really supporting. And consumers are deeply confused. So I think we need to move toward a system where there will be a second barcode on every product. I know I'm crowding these labels. Um, and, that, um, and that you could run that barcode under a scanner at a kiosk in the supermarket. And there would come an image of the farm where that chicken actually lived. <laughs> This is no longer expensive at all. And you would see the diet. You press another button and, and see the diet. What did that chicken eat? What, and what, what pharmaceuticals went into that chicken? And then you press another button and you see the slaughterhouse. And nothing would clean up those awful places faster than cameras uh, broadcasting through the web to eaters on a 24-7 basis. Um, so we should be fighting for transparency. The principle of the glass abattoir, the glass wall in the slaughterhouse, you know, will, will be more powerful than any regulation you could dream up. Um, and then, of course, we need, and I, and I proposed this in Farmer-in-Chief and, and have been very happy to see that it's actually happening, is that the White House set an example, and Michelle Obama has begun to do that. Um, we have a White House organic garden, which is, you know, very... Uh, who thought that this would actually happen, except for Alice Waters, actually. Um, but I never thought it would really happen. Um, you know, this sounds symbolic, uh, but if you go back to World War II, when Eleanor Roosevelt did the same thing, we got to a point where there were 20 million victory gardens in America in World War II, and they, provide 40, they provided 40% of the produce in this country. We have this huge resource called the Great American Lawn. And to the extent we can rip that out and begin growing food... That is the most local food of all. That is the shortest food chain of all. Uh, the freshest, most nutritious, um, and often tastiest food that you can possibly grow. But gardening is very, very important for other reasons too. Um, and I'm going to end on this point and um, uh, talk a little bit more about politics perhaps when we sit down. Because um, gardens teach a different way of being in the world. A tremendous part of our problem, I think, confronting climate change today is that we all feel helpless. It's too big a problem, and our lives are just too deeply woven into this system of uh, what Wendell Berry called the cheap energy mind. By that he meant we do so little for ourselves today. We depend on distant others to feed us, to entertain us, to do our taxes, to do everything. And it is only 
it, it's cheap fossil fuel that allowed us to have this incredible division of labor. It has underwritten some good things. Um, but the challenge of living without cheap fossil fuel is the challenge of doing more for ourselves. And the, wonderful, the wonder of gardening is the discovery that doing something more for yourselves is eminently doable, eminently pleasurable, um, and uh, makes you feel empowered. And I think that finally is what's driving this whole food movement. Um, it is one area of our lives where we can take back power from the cheap energy culture. And even if it's incremental, even if it's in parts, but we see how we can do it. We don't see how we can live without our cars, without our heat, without our air conditioning. Um, but we can change the way we eat and, um, and begin, really, to tackle these problems one delicious bite at a time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Got some questions? Yes, we do. I think we had more questions than we've ever had. Um, that means I left some things unanswered. <laughs> <laughs> While you were talking, I was thinking of the Amish. I have a particular interest in the Amish, and um, in many ways, they would satisfy a lot of your concerns of this model of bringing animals back onto the um, farm. And what's interesting about the Amish is that they're um, producing it themselves at a great rate, yeah. and they're buying up farmland. Um, do you, is, are they a solution to um, the labor problem? This is a trap, <laughs> no, Kevin. It's not. You know, Wendell Berry talks a lot about the Amish, and, and, and many of his examples of really good farming are, are Amish. The Amish are terrific farmers. They show what you can do with small amounts of land, sometimes really not great land, uh, and how much food you can produce um, without you know, all the technologies of modern agriculture. But I, I tend to think that the future of agriculture is not about turning back the clock. And the kinds of agriculture that excite me are not pre-industrial, they're post-industrial. And so what someone like Joel Salatin is doing um, with these very uh, complex rotations of animals depends on a knowledge of entomology, soil science, um, botany, um, energy flows that simply was unavailable um, until very recently. And um, so to hold up the Amish as an example, even though I think there's, there are many things to be learned from them, and, and Wendell Berry has translated a lot of those lessons, is to, is, is to um, suggest that we need to turn back the clock. And, and I, don't think that's what, I don't think that's what's in store. Okay. So you talked about the kind of post-industrial solution. So um, Anthony Cagle, I think that is. Um, what is the role of robotics in relocalizing agriculture? That's a good one. Well, you know, one of the, um, when you look at a monoculture, you realize it's tied to a certain kind of technology, which is to say the, the uh, you know, the big combine, the 32-row planter. These are amazing devices. Mm -hmm. And monoculture seems to favor that kind of simple one-solution technology. But I was talking to an agronomist at Iowa State when I was researching Omnivore's Dilemma, and he said, you know, that's, that fit was true once, but it needn't be true now. 
And there is no reason that we shouldn't be able to develop uh, a mechanical picker that could handle something like the three sisters rotation of, of, mm -hmm. of you know, the, the Mexican rotation of corn, squash, and beans. And things ripening at different times that, you know, if they can build cars, they can recognize when the tomato is ripe, uh, when the bean is ripe, and actually sort their way through that complicated little um, ecosystem going on there. So, you know, it's, it's a high capital solution, um, but I think that we are at a moment where we could start reconceiving our, our hardware in agriculture to deal with polyculture. So if he'll fund it, I'll support it. <laughs> uh, Fred, no last name. Um, cheap food is also very convenient and fast. Eating real food requires time and effort. Given our time-obsessed society, how do, you, how, how do we affect what is a huge behavioral change? Well, that's the cultural shift I'm talking about. I mean, we put very little time into food in this country. It's something like a half hour a day for procuring food, preparing food, and eating food. That's, that's the average. Isn't that amazing how little time it is? This used to occupy many, many hours. And most people feel they don't have any more time to give to food. I find this kind of stunning. I mean, in the last 10 years alone, we found two hours a day to deal with the internet. <laughs> you know, the day is still 24 hours. There's no more time in the day. Now, we're stealing this from our employers in many cases, I think. <laughs> but we could steal a little online food shopping, too. Um, so I really think it is, for many people, about priority. And I know we have, you know, we have uh, two-income households, um, and it is more of a struggle. Um, but we spend a lot of time waiting in restaurants for our food to be prepared. <laughs> and if you throw that time in, that, all, that time could be spent cooking. There are a number of questions um, about your kind of um, avoidance of the issue of genetically engineered food, and particularly as you were suggesting that you're not interested in looking back but going mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. So um, what's wrong with genetically engineering crops to produce the kinds of things that we want um, in whatever direction that we want to go? Well, I can imagine genetically modified crops that would contribute to the kind of sustainable agriculture that I'm describing. We don't have them now. And, they're not, and, and by and large, they're not being worked on. I mean, Pam Ronald may tell you something else when she comes here. But basically, Technologies don't operate in isolation. They're, they're contextual. And the context of the big uh, uh, GM crops we have today are monocultures. They are designed specifically. I mean, all the money goes into corn and soy. More corn and soy. Roundup Ready soy, BT corn, or now Roundup Ready corn. Um, and essentially what we're using GM to do is to um, allow farms to, monocultures to get even bigger. One of the mysteries of genetic engineering, and you should ask Ron and uh, uh, Pam Ronald about it, is that you know, every, if you read the back page ads of, of Monsanto, they talk about you know, we, need, we need genetic engineering to increase the yield uh, because we have a fixed land base, 10 billion people coming, we need GE to increase yield. That sounds good, but look at the history. The history of GE, they've been at it for 20 years. They have not increased yield. That's not what they do. Ask a farmer, and they will say, no, it's not about increased yield. What it's about is, I can handle more land because I don't have mm. to do the three sprayings of herbicide. I can handle more land because if there's an outbreak of European corn borer over there, I'm covered. I don't even have to pay attention to it because the plant will put out the pesticide. So the thing to be 
to be careful about, and this is what I would have talked to Stuart about, is that a lot of GE is being sold to us uh, based on uh, a future promise that I don't even think they're working on. Um, we are being sold a pig in a poke with, um, uh, to use a farmer expression, that I don't even understand. Um, <laughs> I meant to Google that. Um, what is a poke? <laughs> um, what? A bag. It's a bag. Thank you. Okay. It's, a, it's, it's the right analogy. We're being sold genetically modified seed in a poke. Um, you know, if, if Monsanto is really serious about using its crops to solve problems, um, they won't be working on basically what are essentially band-aids on monocultures. Um, so, you know, I think we talk altogether too much about it. Um, I think it gets way too much attention, and that's why I, I didn't talk about it. Um, but the, the increases in yield we have seen over the last 20 years have all been from conventional breeding, which is withering on the vine because it doesn't get support. But there, we can solve these problems with conventional breeding. Um, so I'm not raising alarms about the health risks. I'm not even raising alarms about the environmental risks, although there are some. Um, what I'm suggesting is that this is really a very good business for a, a small handful of companies um, and that the real key to genetic engineering is control of intellectual property of the food crops that we depend on. This is why they do it. And if we had open source genetic engineering, if we had genetic engineering that was really being applied to um, uh, making the system more sustainable rather than more brittle, which is essentially what it's doing, you know, I. I'm open to, to learning about it. Um, you know, it, it, it's possible. I mean, maybe you can figure out a way to increase the photosynthetic efficiency of, of plants. Um, but the other thing I would insist on, besides open source mm -hmm. uh, for the intellectual property, is freedom to study it. And one of the real, you know, Monsanto and these companies say that this is the most, you see, got me started on this, sorry. I, I do have a lot to say about it. Um, that, uh, you know, this is the most studied, most regulated food in history. Um, the fact is that uh, you, as an independent scientist, are not allowed to study a Monsanto product. Um, you are simply forbidden. And if you want to do a, a test on the environmental or health implications of genetically modified soy or corn or whatever, you must sign a contract that gives Monsanto prior approval before you can publish. Mm. And just two months ago, uh, crop scientists around the world signed a letter saying, we can't study this stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we need uh, the ability to you know, really shine the light of science on this thing and not let Monsanto control all that information. So those are my objections. By the way, Stuart, if you want to read an alternative point of view, um, uh, Stuart's new book has two very... Um, powerful, but completely wrong-headed chapters on, <laughs> on this. But they're well worth reading. They will yeah. focus the mind. Um, Stuart's, book, Stuart, Stuart's book will be out in October, and he will actually be giving a Long Now seminar on his book in October, so come back in October. Uh, this is a question from Cameo Wood. As a beekeeper, I am constantly asked by farmers to put hives on their pesticide treated farms. My bees die and they hire new beekeepers. How can I help farmers break the cycle? 
Yeah, well, the B issue is, is, uh, is, is very alarming. You know, we've been talking about the system being unsustainable for a long time, and the question of where the breakdown would occur, you know, who knows? And it probably will happen in some very unpredictable way. Uh, it might be the loss of cheap fossil fuel, but it might be the collapse of the honeybees, on okay. which we depend for, what, one in three of every sure. of bites of food we take. Um, the problem with the bees is basically a, is, they are, is a monoculture problem. Um, a lot of people think that the source of this honeybee disease um, that so many of them are, you know, this colony die-off has to do with the fact that um, the bees ha- are spending time on pesticide-soaked fields. But more important, they're all coming to California every February to pollinate the almond harvest, the almond crop. Um, every Valentine's Day, 75% of the beehives in America are driven across country to the Central Valley because there are so many almonds there and everyone, every blossom, every almond you eat needs to be pollinated by a honeybee and there simply are not enough honeybees in the Central Valley. Why? Because there's nothing to eat for 50 weeks of the year. Why would they hang out? So they have to bring them in. And this practice only began in the 70s when, you know, it was $10 to rent a box of bees. Now it's $150 to rent a box of bees. That's how critical the need is. So that you have people waking up bees in New England, driving them across country. Get this, to get them in shape, they give them um, high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We are giving bees high fructose corn syrup so they will be, you know, sturdy enough to, to attack the almond crop. And... And since we're bringing bees from all over the country and increasingly all over the world, because we didn't have enough bees three years ago, so the USDA allowed them to import bees from Australia, who had a new set of diseases that American bees hadn't been exposed to, we mix them all up, and the beekeepers call it the great bee bordello in the Central (laughs) Valley. So, you know, we need to plant bee habitat where we have our crops. you know, if you're going to be growing almonds, you know, a certain percentage of your land has to be devoted to, uh, you know, wildflowers or whatever the bees want to stay healthy for the rest of the year. So one of the things that's very evident these days is that um, more and more uh, China and other countries like India are having a larger effect on the world in terms of whatever it is that we want to count, whether it's pollution or generation of gases or even economic um, are there other countries of the world, and this is a question from Michael M., whose functioning, the, the modern uh, functioning agricultural systems that are go- doing a good job that you think are worth looking at? So is China doing anything that we should be paying attention to, or, or is it things that we shouldn't be doing? Are they imitating us? Yeah. So how does this fit into the global view? Yeah, well, you know, I have to say, it's, it, I have not worked on the global question that hard, mm-hmm. so I, I'm speaking more from what I've read than what I've seen. Um, by and large, um, other countries are following our lead because we, you know, we've basically insisted they do that. Free trade has been, by and large, in agriculture, a process of breaking down local agricultural mm-hmm. systems so that we go to Africa and we say, if you want to renegotiate your debt, part of structural adjustment is no more grain reserve. Grain reserves are very powerful tools for a government to keep food prices from getting too high or too low. Um, and that was something I didn't mention, but we need to bring back grain reserves. Um, the, the, the grain traders hate it because they lose the ability to speculate. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's probably very important. We go to um, a country like Malawi and we say, um, no, you can't give fertilizer subsidies to your people anymore. That's market distorting. So 
we have countries that have been pretty good at feeding themselves um, and that we have insisted that they throw themselves on the mercy of global, you know, grain markets. And I think that that, we learned last summer that that probably was a mistake. And the emphasis is moving the other direction. The World Bank is encouraging countries to once again build up their indigenous ability to feed themselves. I don't know that I can point to countries. There, there are really great examples in, in many countries of, of sustainable growing. The, the example I cited from Argentina is very mm -hmm. interesting, although that is gradually being uh, disassembled for mm. complicated reasons um, that have nothing to do with its effectiveness, but just the, the policies. The government makes so much money on soy exports, they get 35% of the soy exports that they're encouraging farmers to just do soy every year. Um, China is not a good model. I mean, China has polluted their soil to such a great extent that there are very high levels of, of uh, heavy metals in their food. Um, there, I would not trust any product called organic uh, from China. I don't think they really know what organic means. Um, and, and I say that because my students have gone to report on it and you know, bought the strawberries off the organic farms and had them tested and found them full of prohibited pesticides. China has polluted so much of its land, in fact, that they're buying land all over Africa now. They, they realize, they're looking ahead. I mean, they're taking a longer view than we are. They're looking ahead and they say, we don't have enough land to feed our people. So we're going to buy the best agricultural land in Africa, which will be really popular in Africa. Um. Um, there's a question from um, uh, Don Taffler. Um, does your big agricultural system encourage the use of recycled water? municipal wastewater treated to Title ZZ standards. So um, in kind of urban farming, I, I suppose, yeah. is, 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 is the role of water and water use and recycling municipal gray water, does that? Yeah, it's very important. Clean? It's illegal in a lot of places, you know, to recycle gray water. And, and, but if, if we're going to have an explosion of home gardens, we have to figure out systems to allow that. Um, otherwise, you know, it will be unsustainable, at least in California. Um, I, I mentioned Will Allen. He's, his system in Milwaukee is an ingenious, has an ingenious water angle, which is that he's growing fish, these golden perch, um, uh, and he grows them in tanks in these unheated greenhouses. They're essentially heated by the compost piles. That there's one in each corner. That's enough heat. And the, the wastewater from the fish, that they produce their waste, filters down. That water is uh, brought around, and that water then goes to the, the plants feeds the plants, gives them all the nitrogen they need, they essentially clean the water by taking up the nitrates, and then the water comes back clean to the fish. So it's a closed-loop system, um, and we can design those systems. I mean, permaculture, this is, this is what I'm describing as permaculture, has, um, um, you know, is, is always very sensitive to the water issue. But we, we simply need to, you know, we don't price water properly to make people take care of it. Um, most of the water we're wasting is, is, you know, it's not, you know, yeah, your teenager's long shower is one thing, but it's, um, it's, it's the alfalfa crop in California, basically. Right, right. I mean, it's 25% of the water in California goes to grow this low-value, water-hungry crop that then goes to feed dairy cattle living in a desert. So, so you, you've in some ways pinpointed the, the root of the disease and the sickness for the food system as being cheap energy, cheap fossil fuel. And cheap water, we should have. What if um, we had cheap energy of a different type? What if there was cheap nuclear energy? Is it the fact that it's cheap that's the problem, or is it the fact that it's cheap and fossil fuel? Well, I don't know how much... Um, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of the climate effect, it's because it's fossil fuel that we're burning. Right, I understand that. Um, 
and we're turning it into things like fertilizer, which right. you know release nitrous oxide. But if it was cheap nuclear fuel, would we be eating but nukes instead uh, <laughs> of eating oil? But I don't know how you would use that. When you talk about nuclear fuel, you're right. talking about electricity. Yeah. And, and that's not an important input in agriculture. It might be in food processing, I suppose. And yeah, if we put the whole grid on, um, on electric, nuclear-fueled electric trucks for our, yeah, we would, we would mm. definitely, that would definitely cut down on the carbon footprint of our food. But most of the carbon footprint of our food has to do with the, um, the uh, you know, the, the fertilizers, which I don't see how the nukes help you with that. And, um, uh, and you, could, you, could get, you could squeeze the transportation part out, but I think that's probably about it. Okay. So here's a, uh, we haven't said anything controversial. Here's a question from Keith Borg. How does hunting fit into your idea of sustainable food? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, I think hunted meat is some of the most sustainable meat you can eat. Um, we haven't talked that much about meat eating, but as I've kind of suggested, if you want to do one thing to reduce your carbon footprint, cut down on meat consumption. I mean, nothing is more, um, uh, produces more fossil fuel that you do than eating lots of meat. Um, and I, and I, I think the idea of a meatless Monday, there's a movement to start a meatless Monday, is a terrific idea. Um, because it's something we could all do. It, it doesn't seem that hard. I mean, we, I mean, we can't have a day without driving for many of us. We can't have a day without heating your house, but we could have a day without eating meat. That, that seems eminently doable. And it's the equivalent of taking 20 million cars off the road. 20 million mid-sized sedans, if, if everybody did it. Um, hunted meat is solar-produced meat, uh, right? I mean, you know, nobody's fertilizing the, uh, the food that the deer are eating or the, or the wild boar. And... Um, and we have a, a surfeit of this, uh, of this meat. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we need, to, uh, we need to appreciate what hunters can bring to the table. So you mentioned uh, politics. Here's a question from Terry Mosley. Can you tell us more about the folks that have been put in charge of the Department of Agriculture and the current administration? Are they any good? Would you prefer different people? Well, you know, uh, Tom Vilsack is the uh, Secretary of Agriculture, and when he was first appointed, I gave a kind of, you know cranky and temperate response in an interview and I said uh, agribusiness as usual he was governor of Iowa very close to the biotech industry um, had you know done some things in Iowa that weren't that um, helpful um, but he surprised me and a lot of other people since he's taken office um, he's talked a lot about local food um, he's talked a lot about farmers markets he's very committed to building farmers markets in this country and um, uh, and speaks about them with a passion that comes from uh, the heart um, and he really understands that that farmers markets are not just about food they're about community it's become a very important kind of new public square in America so he will promote that um, he has as I said he's hired as his number two Kathleen Merrigan and I think that that's incredibly helpful and already she's, uh, you know, started a program where we have something called Equip Funds, which is uh, money that in the farm bill that goes to um, basically helping feedlots clean up their waste. We pay, you know, they produce the waste, we pay them to clean it up. That some of those funds now can be used to help farmers transition to organic. That's a radical new idea. So I'm, I'm encouraged by, you know, some of the things that are happening. He's really up against it. Um, and the industry, you know, he made a move on subsidies in the budget. Um, where they tried to cut subsidies to farmers uh, grossing more than $500,000 a year. Hmm. And, he, and he depicted it as, um, uh, you know, taking money from rich farmers and giving it to hungry children, which is really not 
helpful way to describe it. Because um, first of all, they weren't rich farmers. I mean, the problem with this industry I'm describing is it's so capital intensive that you could have $500,000 in gross sales and be making $40,000. Um, so he, it was kind of not well thought out, and, uh, and it was promptly dropped. Um, and, he or, and he unified the farm block against him. But I, you know, I do think that um, there is pressure mounting, and that they feel that there is pressure. But it's important to understand, I think, that it won't happen. You know, I read that quote from Obama, and he gets it. And it's not enough to elect someone who gets it. Getting it is not the same as doing anything about it. And Obama has actually said, um, you know, privately to people he's talked to about these issues, you know, I don't see enough of a movement yet to move on these food questions. Mm -hmm. um, show me the movement. He's used those words, which FDR and, uh, used also uh, in another context. Show me the movement. And what he means is that, you know, there is such opposition to change. The system works so well for such powerful companies that he's going to need a lot of people at his back. And there's a story uh, told about um, uh, Bill Clinton in 1993 when, he, when, he, when he, uh, he had his first budget negotiation, and he really, you know, was kind of taken to the cleaners uh, and gave up a lot of his social investment Robert Reichian ideas and kind of moved toward the Robert Rubin side of, of things. And there were some good things in that first budget, but there were a lot of things that disappointed people. And at the bill signing, he found Bernie Sanders in a corner, and Bernie Sanders being the, the, the congressman furthest to his left, right, the socialist from Vermont. And he went over to him and he started doing this thing, which, you know, he was so good at. Clinton would get people in corners and, you know, and he said, why weren't you screaming at me? I needed you to be screaming <laughs> at me so I could have brought you something back. So as much as you might support Obama, and I don't mean to make any presumptions about the politics in a San Francisco <laughs> hall like this, um, you need to scream at them. <laughs> we really need to keep the pressure up. That's how change comes. Um, this is uh, a note from Brian Fisher, um, who actually is a world-class ant expert who is offering a challenge. Ant expert? Ant expert at the Cal Academy of Sciences. It says, ants invented farming 50 million years ago. <laughs> they were fungus-growing ants, like leaf-cutter ants, and they grow one species of fungus... <laughs> <laughs> they're growing a monoculture, so perhaps there may be something that you, we can learn from ants. That's a great question. How yeah. do they do it? How do they How do, do it? they deal with disease? I'm sure Brian is here. Maybe you... Um, Brian, thank you. <laughs> I want the answer to that question. So, um, Actually, you know, DuPont would really like the answer <laughs> to that question, <laughs> even more than me. Um, so this is a, a seminar on thinking long-term. As you kind of imagine the future of the food system, uh, give us a success scenario, the victory state in 50 years from now, your tireless talks and uh, book writing has succeeded and people have made a movement and change has happened. What does it look like in this modern world where we have the internet and beyond, and we have uh, China and India rising. Do, do, you, ha do, you, have, do you have a sense of, of what uh, agriculture system looks like that is actually working? Well, when I think about the future, I, I, um, I imagine a time where there will not be one agriculture system, where there will be more than one. I, you know, on a 50-year horizon, I don't see industrial agriculture vanishing. 
Um, and I'm not even so sure that would be a good thing for it to vanish. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, coming up with one solution is another form of monoculture thinking. <laughs> and that we would make a mistake to throw all our eggs in one basket, whether it was pastured meat or organic agriculture or, or any number of different mm -hmm. things. We need a resilient system, which is to say, with many, many different ways of doing the same thing. Um, you know, Joel Salatin, when I asked him the same question, I said, how do you see the future? What's, you know, are you going to blow up this, this uh, industrial food system? Um, and he said, no, I see it. He's a very religious man, so he uses uh, this metaphor. He said, I see it as more of a reformation than a revolution, which is to say, you know, there used to be only one way to feed yourself. You know, when I was a kid, there was the industrial, there was the church of industrial food. It was the supermarket. <laughs> it's where you got your food. There was no other place to get your food. And, um, but then these reformers came along and they nailed their 99 theses up on the church door. And suddenly you had all these new denominations of food. And we have that. We have organic, we have pastured, we have local, we have, you know, CSA movement. We have all these different uh, urban agriculture. And we have choice. And the big church is still there, but it's smaller. And, that, so, and, I, and I think that's about right. I look forward to a day where industrial food is a much smaller part mm -hmm. of, the, uh, of the equation and that these other systems are really vital, giving it a really good run for its money, competing successfully, um, and, um, and, and democratizing the choices, obviously, because we haven't talked about that, but that, you know, these choices right now are more expensive. Um, there will be certain struts pulled out from under industrial agriculture. For example, the use of antibiotics in livestock production. That is not, we can't do that any longer. We can't afford it. We don't have enough antibiotics and they're going to ruin the ones we have. So when we take that away from them, they'll probably change. So there will be changes within the industrial side too. Um, and if we move toward the kind of transparency I'm describing, and really like blow open the doors on these companies too, they will change. So there will be positive change within industrial agriculture, and it's happening already. I mean, even McDonald's is, you know, feeling pressure from PETA and is changing the way they raise animals. So you'll have, you know, incremental change within, but more importantly, you'll have all these choices without. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what I look forward to. And, and from a policy point of view, obviously policies that reward this pluralism. You're a journalist. Journalists get bored thinking about the same thing for very long. What's next after reforming the, world, uh, the world's food? <laughs> after reforming the world? Well, I think I'm going to be busy with that for a little longer. Um, I don't know. I'm in the process of, you know, dreaming up the next book ideas. I'm, they're, they're a little too um, uh, young to be trotted out in public. Um, and, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on some ideas and, uh, and writing about some other things. I mean, you're right. I mean, I don't want to just write about food. The, my last project is... Um, I did a piece for National Geographic on uh, the really kinky sexual practices of orchids. And <laughs> were you disappointed at the end of that sentence? <laughs> you, you shouldn't be. They're really amazing. And I went to Panama and Sardinia and looked at how these orchids reproduce. And um, so, I, you know, I, I hope to, you know, I have a lifelong love of writing about plants and their, and their um, effect on us and, and, uh, and ingenuity. So, um, so I'll be doing articles on other topics. Uh, right now I'm writing an article on cooking, uh, on specifically cooking on television, the strange phenomenon of, of how we've managed to turn cooking into a spectator sport in this country. What is, what is that about? You know, if you want to find time to cook, start with the time you, you spend watching cooking on television. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, thank you for oh, thank a wonderful you, Thanks for those evening. Excellent questions. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.